Saturday the 24th of November, 1934, two men hiked up a mountain in Pennsylvania to cut some firewood when they came across a strange green blanket stretched over a mound. The two men were immediately intrigued and decided to take a closer look, though what they would find would be the first in many cases connected eerily together by English folklore. This is the cases of the babes in the wood. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this episode, I'd just like to thank HelloFresh for sponsoring this video. It's brands like HelloFresh that help to keep this channel afloat and help us make true crime content just like in this video. HelloFresh sends seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients straight to your door. They're affordable, easy to cook, and they make cooking far less stressful and a lot more fun. I've actually been trying out HelloFresh recently and I documented me trying to cook one of their recipes. And trust me, if I can cook it and follow the recipe, anybody can. Today we're going to be cooking beefy sloppy joes on chibatatata. Yes. So the beauty of HelloFresh is that everything's numbered. So when it comes, everything's wrapped in the packet. So this is number 13. And, where is it? I've just got to, excuse my message. Number 13. See? This is everything you need, mostly, to make your meal. They offer a huge range of quick meal options like 20 minute dinners or oven ready pizzas, perfect for fitting right into any routine. They make healthy eating far easier with many low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian and pescatarian options. Plus, each recipe is packed with fresh produce sourced directly from farmers. And every recipe is absolutely delicious, even my cat George agrees. And with the average trip to the supermarket or the grocery store being about 41 minutes, you get to claw back that time and skip those trips as HelloFresh will send all of your chef curated recipes and meal kits straight to your door. The pre-portioned ingredients means that there's less prep and there's less food waste for you. And the packaging is made almost entirely out of recyclable material or from already recycled materials. I couldn't rave more about HelloFresh. Their service enables me, someone who lives with a disability, to be able to make sure I get all the nutrients that I need to stay healthy and to eat good and eat right. And it tastes really good. And just for you, HelloFresh has hooked my viewers up with a tasty, scrumptious deal. Excuse the pun. Go to HelloFresh.com and use coupon code JoshuaMiles14 to get 14 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that is coupon code JoshuaMiles14 at HelloFresh.com to get 14 free meals and free shipping. Don't miss out on that. Thank you again to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode. Now, back to the case.
While England mourns the death of astronomer and mathematician Thomas Diggs in the small town of Norwich, London, a ballad was anonymously posted with the title The Norfolk Gents, His Will and Testament, and how he committed and keepinge of his children to his own brother, who dealt most wickedly with them, and how God plagued him for it. This ballad would later become known as, quote, the Babes in the Wood, and it is a traditional English children's tale. It tells a short story of tragedy befalling two young children, with a heartbreaking end. The tale begins with two small children who were trusted to their uncle and auntie after their parents had passed away. The uncle, however, was not loyal to his word. You see, he had promised to look after the children, and he told his wife that the children had been sent to London in order to give them a better life, though... The truth was that he gave the children to ruffians who, in turn, would murder them so that the killer could get the inheritance. One of the men who the uncle gave the children to actually had a change of heart and decided to speak with his partner about the fate of the children. But his partner actually felt the opposite. His partner thought that the men were being paid good money and that the children should die. The more soft-hearted of the two couldn't bear to commit such an awful and evil act and in the heat of an argument, he killed his partner. He then told the children that he was leaving to get them some food, but the children quickly realized that this man wasn't coming back. And so the children began to wander together through the woods until they succumbed to exhaustion. Birds soon covered their small bodies with leaves, showing more compassion to them than the adults in this story. As the children's mother had laid in her deathbed, moments from passing, she had given the uncle a warning. If the wrath of man is unleashed upon vulnerable children, God shall punish you. And soon enough, after the children had both died, the uncle faced the consequences of his actions, as God had seen his deeds. Haunted by the spirits of the children, the uncle went on to lose his cattle, then his lands, and then his own children. This left the uncle in deep debt, which in turn ended with the uncle having to serve jail time. He laid alone and cold on the dirty jail floor. In other versions of this tale, the children are then granted entry to heaven. Now, I'm not just giving you a history slash English lesson for no reason. This folklore tale relates heavily to what we're going to discuss in this episode, as the world celebrated Thomas Edison testing the first practical electric light bulb in 1879, Randolph Caldecott illustrated the tale of Babes in the Wood in a book. And throughout the years, the people in Norwich have said that the house in which the uncle from the folklore lived in is the Grinston Hall, which is still standing to this day. The children supposedly passed away in the Wayland Wood, which comes from the Viking word Wainalan, that means a place of worship. And local legends tell tales of being able to hear the cries of the fallen children at night. This legend of the children's cries saw the wood being nicknamed the Wailing Wood. And heartbreakingly enough, life imitated art time and time again. The modern name for the tale, The Babes in the Wood, started being used to describe criminal cases that had eerie parallels with the story, four of which we're going to discuss today. Three of these cases have been solved, though the last case that we will discuss in this episode has become one of the biggest mysteries in Canada, so stay tuned. Saturday the 24th of November 1934. John Clark and Clark Jardine 
were headed on a hike to cut some firewood on South Mountain in Pennsylvania, the United States. As the pair climbed through the thick foliage on the mountainside, they stumbled upon a seemingly innocent green blanket rested across a mound within the trees. The men's curiosity was immediately piqued, and they decided to investigate. But when they pulled the green blanket back, they were met with a sight from their deepest nightmares. Three girls lay before them on the earth beneath the blanket, all three of them tragically deceased. All of the girls had been found dressed in smart outfits, and they all looked very similar to one another. They had grey eyes, light brown hair, and cute freckles. The two men immediately contacted the authorities, and the police arrived on scene quickly. The news of the discovery spread like absolute wildfire through the local community, and then to neighbouring communities. And this saw hundreds of people flock to the scene of the crime, some of which travelling there in the hopes of perhaps finding their own missing children. The fact that these three girls look so similar immediately caused the investigators to suspect that the three of them had been sisters, though they had absolutely no idea as to who the girls were or where they had come from. A public viewing of the three children was subsequently arranged in the hopes of identifying the youngsters, and thousands of people came to the public viewing to see whether they could help and to pay their respects. The radio stations obsessed over the story, and photographs of the girls were distributed nationwide, but no identification could be made. An autopsy on the girls revealed that they had died as a result of strangulation or suffocation, Five days after the remains of the three girls were found, a suitcase was discovered about three miles away from the crime scene. The suitcase contained a notebook which had the name Norma scribbled on it in messy handwriting, the handwriting of somebody who was young. On that same day, a woman and a man who had been dressed smart were both found dead at an abandoned Pennsylvania railroad flag stop. Both the man and the woman had been shot but the investigators couldn't find any connection between them and the three girls. They had a hunch that they were connected in some way, they just didn't know how. It wasn't long until a break in the case was made, when a woman went to the police and told them that she had been eating in a restaurant with her son on the 18th of November, when a man and three young girls sat down at the table next to them. The man and the three girls spoke to the owner of the restaurants, and when the investigators spoke to the restaurant owner, he identified the man with the three girls to have been Elmo Noakes. The three girls were further identified to be 12-year-old Normick Sedgwick, 10-year-old Juilla Noakes, and 8-year-old Cordelia Noakes. Cordelia, who was the youngest, had been found snuggled in the arms of the oldest child, Norma, with Juilla laying next to them. The discovery of the three girls had been made in the height of the Great Depression, and the father of Juilla and Cordelia, and stepfather of Norma, a man who we know as Elmo Noakes, identified by the restaurant owner, had been raising the three children all by himself. You see, his wife Mary Noakes had sadly passed away due to septicemia hymolytic, following a failed at-home pregnancy termination on the 10th of July 1932 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Elmo had felt the loss of Mary deeply, and he knew right away that he was going to need help in taking care of his three young children, and so Elmo hired his niece, Winifred Pierce, to be a housekeeper. On Sunday the 18th of November 1934, Elmo and his three children travelled to the local restaurant, where Elmo inquired as to whether there was any work available for his children. 
Elmo told the restaurant owner that he wasn't picky about the positions before telling the restaurant owner, quote, my children are beginning to be a burden to me. Though, just days later, on Sunday the 24th of November 1934, Elmo committed an unspeakable act. He suffocated his three children to death, and the following day, he shot and killed his niece Winifred with a shot through her heart and another to her head, before turning the gun on himself and killing himself with a single gunshot wound to the head. Several theories as to what exactly happened to the Noakes family have been speculated, theories discussing why it happened. The chief of police theorised that Elmo hadn't killed the girls on purpose, due to the fact that his affection and love for the three girls had been well known throughout the community. He believed that the three girls had been accidentally killed by exhaust fumes from their automobile. He goes on to theorise that, riddled with guilt and fearing being held responsible, Elmo Noakes and Winifred Pierce committed suicide. Some theorised that they were actually being pursued by an armed gang, and others that Elmo had been suffering from severe mental illness. The funeral for the three girls saw thousands of people in attendance to pay their respects. Elmo and his niece Winifred were buried in the same cemetery as the three girls, with Elmo actually being honoured by the American Legion for his military service with full military honours. Following the famicide, in March of 1935, a bill was proposed and passed that required all school children in the state to be fingerprinted to allow for quicker identification efforts in missing persons cases and in any investigations. It's interesting to note that when the family history of the Noakes family was published, it details that Elmo and his children had died in an auto accident and that Winifred had simply died at the age of 18. A heartbreaking case that to this day leaves us with so many questions and no answers. We can only hope that the Noakes family and the Pierce family had been able to find closure and they were able to move forward. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway were just nine years old when their lives were tragically stolen from them. The two girls had been the best of friends and lived close to one another, which they absolutely loved as it allowed them to spend more time together and gave them space to play. On Thursday the 9th of October 1986, the two girls went out to play as they had done countless times before. The pair actually came across a 14-year-old teenager who they knew, who saw the two nine-year-old girls and told them to go home as it was getting late. This 14-year-old allegedly overheard Nicola telling Karen, quote, come on, let's go over to the park. 
The park they were referring to was called Wild Park, a place that their parents forbade them to go to. It was completely not allowed. And their parents' fear of the Wild Park would sadly manifest into their worst nightmare when the two girls failed to return back home by their bedtime. The following afternoon, on Friday the 10th of October 1986, searchers Kevin Rowland and his friend Matthew Marchant tragically discovered the bodies of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. They were found hidden in a makeshift den in the park, and an autopsy horrifically revealed that they both had been strangled and sexually assaulted. As the families of the two girls became overwhelmed with grief, investigators set their focus on finding out what monster could have harmed the two nine-year-old girls in that way. And it wasn't long before the investigators stumbled upon a lead. Russell Bishop had been 20 years old at the time, and he'd been spotted in the same area as the two girls at around the same time that they had met a tragic end. When the searches for the girls had commenced, Russell had quickly shown up with his dog, which he actually claimed to have been a highly trained tracker dog, and that was insured for £17,000. And when the bodies of nine-year-old Nicola Fellows and nine-year-old Karen Hadaway were found, Russell came running to the crime scene. When he was later questioned by the authorities, the investigators noted several inconsistencies. He made a statement to the police that he felt the girl's necks for a pulse. Now, this is all well and good. Maybe he was just a good Samaritan or somebody with first aid training except there were actually several witnesses at the scene where the girls had been found, including a police constable, who all reported to the investigators that Russell didn't get close enough to the girls to even see their bodies properly. The police believed that Russell had told them that he'd tried checking for a pulse in an attempt to explain away any potential evidence against him. A former friend of Russell Bishop, Jeff Caswell, said when speaking about Russell, quote, he was a typical lad around town that time. He'd grown a moustache and he had this car he'd race everywhere. And he was always telling lies, trying to big himself up. He was only around five foot five tall and weighed around eight stone. And I think he suffered from little man syndrome. He was always telling porkies about this and that. He was also a thief. He'd break into cars and he'd steal stuff. He had been a roofer, but was going nowhere really. With all this information, investigators moved in on Russell Bishop. Russell was arrested on suspicion of murder on the 31st of October, and his first trial commenced in 1987. Though, he actually ended up being acquitted on the murder charge due to a series of mistakes that the prosecutors had made. Russell, following the acquittal, went as far as to sell his story to the News of the World for £15,000, claiming to be a wrongfully accused person. Unfortunately, a pattern seemed to emerge in Russell's actions. In December of 1990, he was convicted of kidnapping, molestation, and the attempted murder of a seven-year-old girl in Whitehawk, Brighton, England. And amazingly, in 2018, using modern science, the families of Nicola and Karen finally saw justice being served. The families of the girls wept in each other's arms on the 10th of December 2018 as the Crown Prosecution Service presented new evidence against Russell Bishop. They had used modern technology to actually link him to the murders. Samples taken from the left forearm of one of the victims were re-examined in the hopes of finding any DNA evidence. And miraculously, they managed to find skin flakes, which they subjected to cutting-edge techniques in the DNA field, the result of which shows that it was one billion times more likely that Russell Bishop's DNA was present within those samples 
than it not being present. On the 11th of December 2018, the 31st anniversary of his original acquittal, he was sentenced to two life sentences with a minimum term of 36 years in prison. Justice had finally been served for Nicola and Karen's families, and I sincerely hope that both Nicola and Karen are now able to rest peacefully. The world's eyes were set on NASA's Explorer 1 on Tuesday the 31st of March 1970 as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere after spending 12 years in orbit, burning up as it fell back to where it was once created. But in Sewardston, Essex, England, as the world was watching the skies, true horror occurred secretly on the ground. Two young children, 11-year-old Susan Moriel Blatchford and 12-year-old Gary John Hanlon, would meet a terrible fate at the hand of a known paedophile, Ronald Jepson. Susan and Gary had both been good friends that frequently used to go for walks near Maryland Avenue in Enfield, North London. The pair would walk hand in hand, with Gary carrying his prized football beneath his other arm. Though when the pair failed to return home for dinner on that day, true panic struck their parents. Their minds raced, had they gotten lost, or worse? Both families immediately filed missing persons reports at around 8pm on that same day. People from all over the town came together in the search efforts for the children that evening, though with the temperatures falling below freezing, Susan and Gary's chance of survival was getting slimmer by the minute. The next morning on Wednesday the 1st of April 1970, snow fell silently to the ground and many people in the local community began to fear the worst though the searchers and authorities couldn't find any trace of the two missing children. It was as if they had just vanished into thin air. It wouldn't be until 11 weeks later, on the 17th of June 1970, that a man called Leonard Cook had been walking through the edge of Epping Forest with his Labrador dog when a break would be found. The dog had run into the dense forest and refused all recourse to return to their owner, Leonard. That was extremely unusual for Leonard's dog, who had been trained really well. And so Leonard decided to go and investigate. Maybe the Labrador had found the remains of a squirrel or a rabbit. What Leonard found when he caught up to his dog would haunt him for the rest of his life. He discovered the decomposing remains of the two missing children, Susan and Gary. Susan's arm was rested on top of Gary's body, with the pair lying on the ground side by side. Gary's mother, Beryl, would later tell the media, quote, We never went to bed for the whole 11 weeks. We just sat in the front room and I kept the fire going and the light on. Even with such a horrific and tragic discovery, the crime scene yielded no leads whatsoever, and the case grew cold. The local community, however, refused to forget about the two children who had been stolen from their lives way too early. In a turn of fortune in this case, in May of 1996, the police finally caught a break when the perpetrator of the crime actually called up Scotland Yard to offer information about the case. The perpetrator was a man called Ronald Jebson. Now, it is important to note that Ronald didn't actually confess to the crime when he first phoned the police. He told them that he'd seen it being committed. It wasn't until two years later in 1998 when he finally decided to tell the authorities everything he knew. You see, Ronald had been convicted for the rape and murder of another child and was behind bars. And as he spent his time behind bars, he decided to reveal all. 
He told the investigators that he had lured the two children into his vehicle before driving them to a hide that he had previously built. There, he raped and strangled them. Ronald wasn't unknown to the investigators in this case, as they had actually interrogated him during their initial investigations due to the fact that he was a convicted child sex offender who lived in the area, but he lied to the police about his whereabouts and had an independent witness corroborate his alibi. On the 28th of March in the year 2000, the families of the children held their breath as Ronald Jebson pled guilty to both murders. He received two life sentences on top of the time he was already serving for other crimes. The judge in the case said to Ronald as the trial closed, quote, 30 years ago, you abducted, sexually assaulted and murdered two young children. What these children went through before they died does not bear thinking about. The only points that can be made on your part is that you have owned up to what you did, which caused a small degree of comfort to their close relatives, who are here to see justice done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've just discussed three solved cases with eerie parallels to the English folklore, The Babes in the Woods. I now want to talk to you about our fourth and final case, a case that is one of Canada's biggest mysteries. The Babes in the Woods of Stanley Park. Tuesday the 13th of January 1953, the day after Estonian emigres found a new government in exile in Oslo, a veteran park board gardener called Albert Amos Tong had been clearing bushes for tree planting near Beaver Lake in Vancouver, Canada. It was as Albert was clearing these bushes when he suddenly stumbled upon a patch of leaves that made a rather peculiar crunching sound when he stepped on them. He paused, taking note of the strangeness of the leaves and the location he was in, but he knew he couldn't stop for long or investigate further as he was on a tight schedule and needed to get the bushes cleared, ready for the tree planting project. Albert would later explain, quote, I was working over there. On Tuesday, I walked over the spots and heard a loud crack as my foot went on a bundle of leaves. I went back and told my friends, it looks like there is someone buried there, but I did nothing about it as I was too busy that day. Albert didn't forget the strange discovery in any rush and quickly decided that he would return back to the area the following day on the 14th of January, 1953. Albert later recounted, quote, this morning, January 14th, I went over and raked at the leaves. I saw a skull with a boy's cap on it, so I went for the police, then helped them bring the rest of the bones to light. Unbeknownst to Albert, he had just unearthed a shocking crime. Two children lay underneath a decomposing woman's fur coat and tree branches, and it was immediately clear to the authorities that the two children had been murdered. And within moments, the case which would become known as the most heartbreaking case in Vancouver's history would begin. The small skeletal remains of the children had been found lying in a straight line with the soles of their feet facing one another, forever touching, and their heads in opposite directions. 
that had been carefully covered by a woman's fur coat, which had a grey-green lining and tie strings around the waist. Alongside and on the children, several items were also found. The smaller of the two children was wearing a leather aviator's helmet with goggles that were still strapped onto their skull. A blue and white tin lunchbox was also found, along with a second aviator's helmet, although it is unclear whether this second helmet had been found still on the oldest child's head or not. The oldest child was found wearing a plate bracelet, which detailed either two dogs and a sitting rabbit in the middle, or three dogs. Different sources make either claim, so it's unclear as to which exactly is true. As the children had been left out in the wilderness for such a long period of time, little actually remained of their clothing, though this didn't stop the investigators from gathering as much information as possible from the pair. Detectives attempted to take a closer look at the pieces of clothing that they could recover under a microscope, and with the assistance and aid from a yard's good manager of a Vancouver department store, the cloth was determined to have been that of Red Fraser Tartan. Despite this discovery, the authorities were unable to ascertain any further leads, and it became clear to them that the clothing found on the children had likely been homemade and used materials from an old piece of fabric. The authorities were able to retrieve a child's belt and a zipper from a sweater or a jacket from the deteriorated clothing that had remained. They further recovered two pairs of brown Oxford shoes with white rubber soles from the feet of both children. A woman's shoe was located nearby to the crime scene, though it is unclear whether this shoe was actually related to the children's murders or not. The police then made their most devastating discovery yet. They recovered a small, worn, rusty roofer's hatchet, with its handle broken in two places. The hatchet was a type that was commonly used by shingle weavers and lavas, and when it was compared to the injuries that the children had sustained, it was determined to have been a match. The investigators finally had a lead. They had their murder weapon. The woman's shoe that they found was described as having a thick, pale, crepe rubber sole, and the investigators did theorise that it might have fallen from the murderer's foot as they fled the scene of the crime after it had become stuck on a branch or something similar. Again, whether it was actually connected to the case is a hot topic. It could simply be a discarded shoe, though the fact that the children had been found with the women's fur coats rested on top of them cements the idea that the shoe is connected to the case for some people. Interestingly, several of the items that had been found at the crime scene are now actually on display in an exhibit at the Vancouver Police Museum in British Columbia. The exhibit also includes casts of the children's skeletons, their clothing, the lunchbox, the women's fur coat and shoe, and the murder weapon. The museum's director, Robert Noon, says that the exhibit resonates with the visitors. Quote, when they get to the babes in the woods cabinets, there's almost a silence. A hush comes over them as they read about what happened to these small children. Once you learn about it, it's got an intrigue that's infectious. I personally lock up the museum and go through the displays, turning the lights off. And whether intentionally or otherwise, that's always the last light I turn out. I say, good night, everybody and walk out. It's something I've done ever since I've been here. Now it is important to note that the year of the two children's deaths is actually up for debate. The style of shoes that they had been wearing were only sold after the Second World War, and when the authorities analysed the ground and nature that was on top of the remains, they estimated that they had been in that location for approximately six years. 
It was initially estimated that the children had died sometime during the fall of 1947, though this time frame was ultimately widened due to eyewitness reports. We'll talk about these eyewitness reports in just a moment. The new time frame placed the crime occurring as early as 1944, in 1949, or in 1950. Now, interestingly, a doctor was called to the crime scene to examine the skeletal remains, though we do have to note that this doctor was not a forensic pathologist and hadn't any training within that field, even though the field itself was quite young at the time, he had no training in um, that science. This doctor concluded that the skeletal remains were from a young boy aged between five and seven years old and a girl aged between seven and nine years old. And this was seemingly consistent with the clothing that they had been found with at the crime scene. However, this conclusion was a critical mistake. It resulted in investigators looking for the wrong leads for over four decades of inquiries. And during those four decades, the case went cold. In 1998, the case was reopened by unsolved homicide unit detective Brian Honeybourne. You see, Brian had a personal interest in the case and had always been fascinated by the story surrounding it that he had heard. His parents had spoke about the case in hushed tones when he was just a child. After Brian contacted Dr. David Sweet, who was a professor and specialist at the University of British Columbia, they were actually able to extract DNA from the teeth of the children's skulls. And from those DNA samples, they learned information that shocked them. It was determined that the skeletons actually belonged to two young boys who had been brothers. They shared a mother, though they had different fathers. And they were determined to have been between seven and ten years old. When Dr. Sweet was asked about this case, he said, quote, Of course, as the case gets older and colder, so do the leads and opportunities for identification. It's important to establish that several witness reports were actually filed in this case, reports that claimed to have seen the children with a woman. The cold case detective Brian Honeybourne followed up on many of the leads over the years, though he was actually able to rule them all out. One of these witness reports came from a man who had worked in a logging camp. He told the investigators that in 1949 or 1950, he had been with a friend on the road when they had picked up a hitchhiker who had been with two children. During this trip, the hitchhiker confessed to this witness and his friend that she'd been in trouble with the Mission Police, Mission being a town, for either vagrancy charges, which is a fancy way of saying that she was homeless, or possibly for Vag C which means prostitution charges at the time. The hitchhiker further told them that either one of the children or both of her children attended Cedar Valley School and that she lived on Cherry Street in Mission, British Columbia. This witness actually told all of this information to investigators at around the time of the discovery or sometime thereafter, when exactly is unclear. They further added that the hitchhiker had red hair and the two boys had been about six and seven years old and that at least one of them was actually wearing an aviator flying helmet. Armed with this information, the authorities managed to trace this lead to the family name of Grant, though even with what they thought to have been a hot lead, it was ruled out after they spoke to the living relatives of the family. Another witness report was about a woman who had stayed in the New Haven Hotel with two boys before disappearing, though this report was also ruled out. A further report claims that a woman and a man had been seen at Stanley Park with a hatchet and two young children. The report goes on to say that all four of them went into the woods, but only the woman and the man came back out. 
The woman allegedly had blood all over her legs when she returned. This report was investigated heavily, however, it led to no new leads in the case, and it wasn't for lack of trying. Cold case detective Brian Honeybourne followed up on all of these accounts and stories, but surprisingly, he actually found the children from the witness reports to be either still alive or that the dates and times failed to line up with the timeline of the murders in the case. Detective Brian is still searching for answers and is currently reviewing a witness report from May of 1944, which details a sailor from Esquimalts in British Columbia, Canada, and his fiancée who had been walking along the sea wall that surrounds Stanley Park, when out of the blue, a woman rushed out of the bush screaming. The woman had only one shoe on and no coat, but before they could even comprehend what had just happened in front of them, she spotted the sailor and his wife and took off in the other direction running. Detective Brian further hopes that with advances in DNA testing and genetic genealogy, he will eventually be able to track down a relative of the two children. It was announced that earlier this year, in May of 2021, Redgrave Research were contacted to assist in genetic genealogy with the goal of uncovering the children's identities. This new method of identification has been promisingly and successfully used all over the world, though it is a lengthy process. Through analysis of the DNA they have on file and the DNA samples from the skeletal remains, the amazing people at Redgrave Research can check through the families, relatives, and their surnames that they have on file until they find someone that might match the DNA profile that they're looking to identify. In this particular case, due to the age of the two children, they started their search by looking through school attendance records to see if boys matching surnames of the families that they have on file suddenly stopped going to school at some point in the late 1940s. And by that I mean they go through all of the attendance records in the schools in the surrounding areas, all of them, which is a lot of hard work and dedication, and I cannot say and express how amazing these people are. Quote, we still don't know who these boys were, why they were in Vancouver, or who killed them, said Vancouver Police Department spokesperson Sergeant Addison. But we hope genealogical testing will finally give us the answers we've been looking for. Detective Brian Honeybourne, too, remains hopeful in this case. Quote, if the police had apprehended a distraught woman at that time in Vancouver, undoubtedly they would have sent her to St Paul's Hospital or Vancouver General Hospital to get a psych assessment before she'd be shipped off to Riverview, Essendale. The boy's mother is probably long deceased, so nobody living under the illusion that there's ever going to be a court case or anything like that. I don't live under any illusion that the murderer is ever going to face any justice in court. They're probably long gone by now but it'd be nice to find out the identity of these children and give them back their name. All four of the cases we've touched on today are heartbreaking in their own right, each detailing the tragic loss of life stolen far too early from these children. Children who fell prey to the exact people who were supposed to be looking after them, failed by adults. Each child passed away in such an unspeakably horrific manner Unfortunately, three of these cases have led to convictions and justice being served. In our fourth case, the babes in the wood of Stanley Park, two young brothers had their hopes and dreams violently taken away from them. They had the same qualities about them as any other child. They probably had a favourite ice cream flavour, a favourite colour, a favourite toy, a favourite place to build their dens and nicknames for one another. 
details about their lives that we will never have the honor of learning about. Despite not knowing their identities, their memory lives on today in the back of so many people's minds. Everyone hoping one day to finally learn the names of these two fallen brothers. Detective Brian Honeybourne has since retired, but he still has several binders of material from his policing days at home, which he oftentimes goes over. He recently made the following statements when he was asked about the case. It's important. They get murdered in a major city, in a park, and we don't know who they are. They're two little guys that lost their lives way too early through no fault of their own. I think it's incumbent upon us to try and figure out who they were. The Vancouver Police Department say that the case remains open and under investigation by an officer with the Vancouver Police and Major Crime Section to this day. Anyone with any information, no matter how big or small, is urged to contact the Vancouver Police Department at Canada 604-717-3321. Thank you so much for watching our coverage of these cases. Let me know what you think about them in the comment section down below or over on our Discord server. You can join it for free by going to joshuamouse.co.uk forward slash join. Be sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. And a special thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you don't miss out on your exclusive offer of 14 free meals and free shipping using coupon code joshuamouse14 on hellofresh.com. You can find a link below in the description and in the pinned comments. You can follow me over on social media, Twitter and Instagram using the handles It's Joshua Miles on both. For more true crime content, links are also down below. I'm so happy to be back and uploading more regularly and sharing these cases with you. And I hope that you find them just as interesting as I do. Also, quick note on Merch Store. We've just dropped some new notebooks on our Merch Store. Um, I'll put a picture on screen and some more stickers. So if you wanted to go grab that, uh, go to joshuamiles.shop and you can grab them today. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash it's Joshua Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big